If you have your Bibles with you, we'll be in uh, James 3 this morning. Some of you have heard of the uh, Great Chicago Fire. The Great Chicago Fire occurred October 8th through 10th in 1871. The fire killed approximately 300 people, destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of the city, and it left more, 100, left more than 100,000 residents homeless. It uh, took some time, but the city eventually determined that it was an area about four miles long that was burned, averaging about three and a quarter mile wide, an area of more than 2,000 acres. They regretted, in hindsight, how much wood they put into the city. The roads were made of wood, 73 miles. Sidewalks were made of wood, 120 miles of sidewalk. There's 17,000 buildings, and it was estimated then that the property damage was $222 million. It's about the third of the city's value. Massive fires start with one small spark. And in James 3, verse 5, James, the earthly brother of Jesus, compares the tongue to such a spark. I'm going to read to you now James 3, verses 1 through 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man or, or a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the, the, inc the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh Last week we focused on James 3 verses 1 through 5 and we saw there the power of the tongue. We saw that the power of the tongue is revealed in that God holds us accountable to what we teach. We saw in judgment. We also see the power of tongue revealed in action. And really it's fascinating how James teaches that the person who controls their tongue is able to control their whole body even though the tongue is such a small part of the body. And that's the, what, what the tongue's boast of is 
we read in verse 5. A boast of great things. It's not saying it's a boastful tongue, although that's often true. But that it's a powerful tongue compared to its size. It's, it's influence is greater than its size. And really, James is speaking about our speech. And not even only our vocalized speech. The words that we use all through the day to process life. At the end of verse 5, James is still revealing the power of the tongue. He's, he still has a focus at the end of verse 5, but there's a new illustration that comes into focus. Verse 5 ends, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. In comparing the tongue to a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a ship, James was revealing the power of the tongue in controlling the body. But there, his focus was the tongue's potential for good. Now, at the end of verse 5, James reveals how dangerous the tongue is in comparison to its size. As we know all too well in Southern California, a minuscule fire will consume a massive forest. Before, James was talking about the direction the tongue gives to our, our body, but now James is talking about the destruction of our tongue. Our speech leads our life like a rudder a boat, but it can also end our life like a spark destroys a forest. At this point, James is, is not primarily highlighting how destructive our speech can be to our relationships, although that's true. Instead, his focus is that we follow our speech into destruction. So before is the positive idea. We follow our, the, our, our body follows our tongue. But now, it's our body follows our tongue into destruction. We've seen the charred hillsides, the blackened shrubs on the mountains. James's warning, godless words leads to God's wrath. But all is not doomed, though. James is writing to those who have confessed faith in Christ, many of whom are truly saved. They have repented and been baptized into Jesus Christ. They have committed to submitting their speech to the Lordship of Christ. So James writes to warn them, as he often as in this letter, that saving faith will be followed by God-pleasing behavior, or in this case, by God-pleasing words. Saving faith is going to be followed by God-pleasing words. So the big idea this morning is that the sanctification of your speech is an evidence of the salvation of your souls. The sanctification of your speech is an evidence of the salvation of your souls. And I say, and evidence, it's not the only one. And it's not that it is always perfect, but sanctification, the increasing holiness of your speech is an evidence of the salvation of your souls. This morning we're going to see three truths regarding the tongue that reveal why sanctification in speech is an evidence of the salvation of your souls. So we're going to look at three truths, and these truths are going to show you really what God overcomes in sanctifying us. So by God's grace, many of you are going to be encouraged by looking and seeing what God is accomplishing in your life. And you're going to be more certain that you are truly saved. Some of you... And, and Lord willing, are going to be paused. You're going to look and say, whoa, is my speech being sanctified? Is it giving evidence that I'm truly saved? 
The first truth is that the, that the tongue is, is perverse. The first truth is that the tongue is, is perverse. It is twisted. We see, we're going to see that in verse 6. In verse 6, James includes so many descriptions of the tongue that, that it's kind of like a seizure-inducing video game ad, right? You're just seeing all these visuals coming at once. That's almost too much for the mind to, 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 to comprehend. There's, it's, 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 it's like a cubist painting with all these different angles uh, giving a composite picture of the tongue that is disturbing. It is shows the perversity of the tongue. And these verbal images work together to show how twisted the tongue is, how broken it is, and even you're going to see that the tongue is kind of like a supervillain. This, this, this tongue is wicked. James begins, the tongue is a fire. In this context, fire is only, is only destructive. James doesn't intend the fire's capacity to bring light or to bring warmth. It's just destructive. Fire is unsatiated. With enough oxygen and enough fuel, it will consume for eternity. It'll keep going. The fire of the tongue destroys relationship. It destroys people. It destroys both yourself and it destroys others. World wars have been ignited with the tongue's fire. The tongue is a fire. And with the next phrase, James doesn't hold back. He describes the tongue, as, and this is a mind-stretching phrase here, as the very world of iniquity. Your tongue is the world of iniquity. The tongue is the world's system of sin. It, epi it epitomizes everything that is wrong with humanity. All of its fallenness is encompassed in the tongue. Off the tongue flows selfishness and pride, ingratitude and greed, hopelessness and blame shifting, deceit and hate, all from the tongue. The tongue is a microcosm of malice. It is systemic selfishness. It is as if the tongue boasts, I'm wickedness. I'm self-centered sin. Now listen to me rant. And that's what our tongues naturally flow with. James continues, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And the ESV has, it is staining. And you can visualize what comes out of the mouth as foul-smelling, blister-inducing, hazardous waste just flowing out. Our whole person is, is corrupted by the rivers of our mouth. We are stained with its filth. And we can't get ourselves clean of our words. You can think of Macbeth's futile attempts trying to cleanse his hands of Banquo's blood. We can't get the stain of our words off of our body. The chemical waste of our tongue steeps from the corrupted storage of our hearts into all our actions. And the whole body is stained with this corrosive, defiling speech. Matthew 5, 18 to 20. Perhaps James had heard his brother Jesus say something like this. I mean, this is Matthew 15, 18 to 20. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. 
For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. It comes from out of the heart. James continues, and it is a bleak picture. I'll, I'll, I'll read again verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And then he says, and sets on fire the course of our life. And again, these images are coming pr pretty quickly. And that course of our life is, is literally the wheel of birth or the wheel of existence. And James has an idea like the circle of life from, from Lion King. It's the circle of life here. The tongue sets on fire the circle of life. The whole of our life is set on fire by our speech. Our speech is, the, is, is like a lava overflow of our heart's volcano. And our days are like the last days of, of, of Pompeii. Just an overflow destroying. The river of lava which bubbles out of our kids' mouths continues its destructive overflow until death. It destroys us and it spreads destruction to others. And really, if you can imagine for a minute what we are apart from God's grace, just lava overflowing into other lava overflowing. And that's very visual where he goes next and is set on fire by hell. He pictures all of our mouths as this volcanic overflow. And where, does all, where did all these flames come from? Set on fire by hell. The, the, the word for hell there, uh, Gehenna, refers to the perpetually burning garbage dump outside of the city walls uh, of, uh, of Jerusalem. You can smell the smoke this morning. I don't know if you guys have smelled the smoke. Where anything unclean was burnt outside the city walls. And, and it was an always burning dump of unclean carcasses, whatever waste. Its fires were never extinguished. The location of this fire dump had a, a tragic history uh, of idolatry, of child sacrifice. What the tongue speaks conforms with hell's schemes. Satan's plans are played out in man's speech. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And that is what we often do with our tongue. We lie and we murder. James' portrait of the tongue is something from a nightmare. It's fiery. It's defiling. It's destructive. It's demonic. And yet, this is not a picture. The tongue is real. It is, it is terrifying. And it is universal. We all have the scars to prove it. With speech so spiritually destitute, you can see why the world boils over in violence and abuse and hatred and war. Right? It's just the product of our speech coming out of our hearts. James sits us down with this terrifying depiction because we need to know what we are up against when we think we can change, right? This is not just a matter of, uh, of reformation. This is not something that comes simple. This is going to require a miracle. The tongue has great potential, but we have a great problem. 
Our problem is not morning breath. Our problem is hell mouth. Our speech is not a matter of reform, of tweaking some habits, of trying harder, of memorizing some proverbs. Our humbling begins when we look at this, what James is saying, and saying, that's me. That's me apart from Jesus Christ. I recognize myself when I hear that depiction. That mouth is my mouth. That was me before Christ saved me. That is me when I don't abide with Christ. Maybe for some of you who have never experienced that change of your speech, that's you now. Despair is a great place to start, but God does not want you to stop there. Right? We should look at that and say, who can save me? 1 Timothy 1.15 says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. If you look, and if your heart is convicted and saying, that describes me, what a sinner I am. Christ Jesus came to save you. Boys and girls, as you listen to your mouths and you are starting to hear all the garbage that's coming out, the older you get, especially when you're away from your parents, and if you're disgusted by that, you should be. Christ came to save you. I said in the beginning that godless words leads to God's wrath. That is what happened on the cross. Jesus Christ was punished for the speech of sinners. He never spoke a filthy word, but he was treated by God as if all of our filthy speech came out of his mouth. That's what happened on the cross. If you turn to him, you can be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. James is not presenting this horrible picture so that we just kind of walk away in despair. That being said, he does not hold back. And he continues with this. He describes first the perversity of the tongue, and next, the second truth is, he describes that the tongue is uncontrollable. The tongue is uncontrollable. Now, don't be hopeless. God changes us. Let's listen to what he says here. Verse 7. James can look at what humans have done, and he can... Appreciate humanity's remarkable ability to control nature. Listen, he says in verse 7, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Now, we, we, we miss in our English Bibles that the word species, when he says every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures, or really it's kind of, kind of every kind every kind of animals, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. And those words species and race are the same words. And James' point is that, is that humankind has been able to exert his God-given dominance over animal kind. And it doesn't mean that you can treat, treat every, teach every animal a kind of trick. It just is saying that humankind has dominated animal kind. 
Animals have been tamed by men, have been controlled by men, have been subdued by men. We've hunted them for food. We've used them in fields to do our work. We've trained them to do tricks for entertainment. We've eradicated them from our homes, or at least we're pretty good at that. In general, and sometimes to our shame, humans win over animals. Maybe not in individual, isolated episodes, but overall, humans have won. From giant whales we've hunted to, to, to the point of being extinct, to the spraying of neighborhoods when they find a mosquito that has West Nile virus, humanity really exerts a terrifying dominion over the animal world. But in verse 8, James draws a contrast. A contrast when it comes to the tongue. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. All of the, the, the ingenuity of man, all of the creativity of man, all the will of man is not able to subdue the tongue. The tongue's very nature is to be restless. It is to be an uncontrollable evil. It's full of deadly poison, ready to strike out, ready to infect, ready to kill. Now, at this point, it's good to remember, James is not only speaking about spoken words, although that's obviously the main point here. Given enough motivation, we can train ourselves to be silent. There's an interesting story of a man named John Francis. He stopped speaking for 17 years. After 10 years of silence, uh, he spoke f for one day just to prove that he was doing it out of his own choice. And then he continued in silence for another seven years. We can exert control over our mouth. We can choose not to speak. We can punish someone until they stop speaking. We can punish others by not speaking to them. But we have no power to, to tame in ourselves the words that we think in. And we have no power to tame the words that someone else thinks in. You can see this in your children's eyes. They might be externally submissive. Yes, Mama, yes, Papa. But internally, you can see the argument is raging. And neither are we able to subdue completely our internal speech. Our whole lives, even if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, your whole life will be a battle to tame your tongue. Whether what you say verbally or all the thoughts that are going nonstop using human language. Humanity's speech is rotten, not because of the words we use, though they can be, but because of who we are. Our tongue is a restless evil because our hearts are unsubduable. Our tongue is full of deadly poison because our hearts are poisoned and poisonous. As Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Poison in and poison out. Trying to control our tongues, we're like a man who's sitting on a large crate, trying to push down a crate. And inside that crate, you can imagine with me for a moment that, that there's a tiger in that crate. And there's some angry pit bulls in that same crate. 
And there's also a bunch of cobras in that crate. Right? And, and you try to hold down that, the lid on that crate, trying to keep all those animals in there. But eventually, they strike out to the harm of everyone around them. And that's what it is like trying to tame our tongues. Psalm 57 verse 4 describes the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Psalm 140 verse 3. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust. Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Paul pulls together these images when he talks about how desperately humanity needs to be declared righteous. Romans 3, verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now James hasn't given us much hope to this point. And you may read these verses and feel, what's the point of taming this uncontrollable tongue? What's the point? This is depressing. And that may be the feeling that James is going for. James wants to bring us to the point of despair so that we humble ourselves and turn to Christ. And he doesn't do it right in these verses yet. But James has been building up to James 4, verses 6 through 10. And if we were just simply reading through the, the letter, this would be one scenario, and then we'd go to another one, and then another one. And we get to James 4, 6 through 10 a little quicker, but let's go ahead and read it now. James 4, 6 through 10. God says, James, but he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's a little of what James is doing here. He wants us to be humble. God is willing to give grace. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's okay for you to read these verses and to be saddened. Right? To be saddened for your own sin and to mourn. To be saddened by the human condition. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Think back about what you've said perhaps this morning. Perhaps this past week. I know. This past week, I thought of someone, referred to them as a snake. Cursing. James wants us to feel the weight of our sin so that we get grace from God. When we are confronted with the condition of our speech, whether that is our internal speech or vocalized, we must be like those who turn to Jesus for healing. Matthew 9.27 describes a blind man following Jesus crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
In Luke 17, verses 12 and 13, the ten lepers stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Mark 5, 25 to 28, describes the woman who had this discharge of blood for 12 years, had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Brothers and sisters, if that's what people do for their physical conditions, how much more desperate and eager ought we to be for this stained, decrepit, corrupting tongue? Right? We've got to go and reach out for the hem of Jesus' garment, confident that he can change us, that he can save us if we're not saved, that he can transform our mouth to be like his and say, Master, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, help me. Jesus says to the woman in Mark 5, 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And he, if you are in Jesus Christ, are healing you of your mouth disease as well. Jesus has compassion on those who are sick. And if he has compassion on those whose bodies are sick, how much more are those whose, whose souls are what James is describing here, overflowing in this kind of filth. When, when, when we read the close caption of our life and we run to Jesus Christ, whether for first-time salvation or for sanctification, that's the kind of humility that God responds to with grace. The untamable tongue can be transformed in, in this life. And eventually you will be given a new tongue that will not be a world of iniquity, but it will be a world of righteousness. Your inability to be perfect, and, and, and James is saying this to Christians here, right? You cannot tame the tongue. Now, we know that there's hope, right? Because James had already talked about in 3 verse, verse, verse 2 uh, uh, about those who are able uh, to, to who, are, who are mature are able to control their tongue. So there's hope. But when we realize we can't do this perfectly, that must not be the end of our effort. We can't throw in the towel. You know, how many things in our lives do we not do 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 we not do we keep doing even though we can't do perfectly? If we're building something that's not quite perfect, we keep working at it. If if we're trying to make the, the perfect chocolate chip cookies, we keep working at it. We don't just say, ah oh, well, I can't be perfect. With our speech, it's pride if we stop going to tame our tongue. The untamable tongue can be increasingly tamed through Jesus Christ. Your tongue is never going to be a kitten. It will always be a bit of a cobra. But even a cobra will sway to the snake charmer's tune. In Christ, when we control our speech, we steer the ship of our lives toward God-pleasing behavior. And that's what he's saying. When we control our, our speech, we, 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 we move our whole body towards God-pleasing behavior. As one commentator wrote, since the tongue is the key to holy living, that's what James has been teaching, we must bend every effort to control it. For if we do, we control all. It's where we should focus our efforts in sanctification, our speech. In 
I need to check the time. I think it is worth a look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 8. It begins encouraging. Because some of you who are in Christ Jesus are feeling the weight of so much of your speech. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, in Romans 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to use your tongue the way you've always used it. For what the law couldn't do, weak as though it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. One application of that teaching there is that because Christ came to be punished in the place of sinners is that we are liberated now to obey his law so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us that we can be different with our speech he continues in verse 5 of Romans 8 Paul does for those who are according to the flesh those who have no power to control their tongue set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit who are new creatures in the Christ set their minds on the things of the spirit verse 6 for the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God it does not subject itself to the law of God it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this has to do tremendously with our speech because Paul is talking about where our minds are set. And where our minds are set has everything to do with what our speech is. If our minds are set on the things of the flesh, we will not be able to please God. But the mind set on the spirit, the mind set on the spirit is able to walk, to, to, is able to please God. So as if you want your speech and the overflow of your heart to be pleasing to God, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Saturate your heart with the truths of God's Word, and the overflow of your heart will be God-pleasing speech. I, I, I love how Paul goes there. There's no, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but he doesn't stop there. Because of the work that has been done in you, you can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, including our speech. The tongue is the overflow of the mind. Either we grow in holiness, ever increasingly bringing our speech into submission to Christ as we live according to the Spirit, as our minds are set on the things of the Spirit, or we let our minds run riot. We let our minds be set on the flesh. We spew venom and we buck restraint. So we have to ask ourselves, is our speech being tamed by God's Spirit? Is your speech being tamed by God's Spirit? Is the uncontrollable being controlled? The first truth that we looked at, so that we could see really the miracle that God does when He transforms our speech, so that we can examine whether the sanctification of our speech bears witness to the salvation of our souls. The first truth was that our tongue is, is perverse. The second was that our tongue is uncontrollable. And the third is that our tongue is destructive. We see that in verses 9 to 12, our tongue is destructive. 
flowing from the description of our tongue as full of deadly poison. James turns to the incompatibility of poison and praise. The, 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 the incompatibility of delight in God and destruction of others. Now, remember, James is writing to confessing Christians. And his next test moves beyond the plight of humanity to the potential hypocrisy among God's people. James continues in verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. James returns to the we he'd been using in verses 1 and 2. Remember verse 1, he said, we will incur a stricter judgment. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. He's, he's talking to confessing Christians, many of whom were saved. James reveals how wicked a, even the tongue of a Christian can still be by showing its destructive duplicity. God created us to praise him for his attributes, to wonder at his actions, but then we curse those who are created in his image, those who are like him. To curse means we wish for someone's downfall, or even ultimately we wish for their destruction. It may even include praying for them to be destroyed. You know, our heart's yearning is that they would be smashed. Now, this is not like the imprecatory Psalms, which is about God's glory. This is about your personal offense. They cut me off, God, so I hope they get in a wreck, or something like that. Luke 6, 28 says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's that kind of cursing that James is talking about. To praise God and to curse his creatures is like telling someone how great they look while tearing up their photo. Or maybe better, it's, it's praising an artist. All, all the while, you're smearing garbage on their art, on their paintings, because you're disgusted. That's what it's like blessing God and cursing his creatures. Such, dude, such duplicity su suggests really a, a self-centered existence in which you praise the one who gratifies you. I love when I'm blessed, but you wish hell upon the one who crosses you. And all the while, we feel entitled and justified in doing so. James continues in verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. That's what James says. And, 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 the, and the translation ought, I mean, ought can be a kind of a funny sounding word, ought. You, you, you shouldn't do that. We, 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 we ought not do that. But it, it kind of hides the, 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 the indignation or even the outrage that James has here. This is completely inappropriate among God's people, James is saying. This cannot be. And yet, James is a realist. He knows this discrepancy exists even among God's people. So in verse 11, James returns to nature to show how unnatural are both, bless, both blessing God and cursing people are. That this is not natural for the same mouth to do both of these things. He says in verse 11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The question is, is rhetorical. The answer is an obvious no. 
If the water's bitter, it's because the source is bitter. At, 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 at its source, now you can muddy up a stream, but at its source, a stream won't vacillate between fresh and bitter water. And yet that's exactly what we as Christians do with, with cleaned hearts, put forth vile things. In the beginning of James 3.12, James says, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Again, the answer is an obvious no. James' point is that one's words are in keeping with one's nature. It reminds of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 16 and 20. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Again, James sounds so much like Jesus. And James would chime in with Jesus when he says you will know them by the fruits. You will know them by their speech. James finishes this topic in, at the end of verse 12. Nor can salt water produce fresh. James doesn't ask a question this time, but his point is the same. Good water won't come from a bad source. Now James is not pushing us to despair, but first to evaluate and then to be consistent. It's tough to imagine James' audience, as he's talking about bitter and sweet water, not remembering when God changed bitter water into sweet. God does miracles. If you're feeling discouraged, God does miracles. Exodus 15, verses 23 to 25. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah. This is describing Israel after they left Egypt. They couldn't drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitter. But okay. So verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. God changes. God does the impossible. He changes bitter waters into sweet. God does miracles today. He changes our bitter hearts into sources of sweet speech. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. Colossians 3 verses 8 through 10 Paul says, Now you also put them all aside, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, the abusive speech from your mouth. And remember, not just what our words say, it has to be in our hearts too. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. God has created us new people in Christ and so that our speech has to match up. Our, our, our sweet new hearts in Christ, the hearts of Christ in us, our life in Christ needs to overflow into gracious and life-giving speech. 
First Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter just gives a little hint how this is done, and we've said this in the past. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and, this, and, and I love what he does here because it's a little surprising. You, you would say, instead, therefore putting aside all those things, instead he should do this, but listen to what he says. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you want to, to stop bringing out of your mouth malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, if you want not bitter waters to come out but sweet waters from the source of your heart, long for the pure milk of the word. Get God's word in there and good is going to come out. Transform your speech by saturating your heart with the truth of God's word by the goodness of Christ Jesus. We must not become complacent if our tongue is vicious. We can't say, well, despite what James says, I guess sometimes olives do grow on fig trees. We must be, be shocked. And that's what James is going for, for us to be shocked when filthy water comes out of clean streams. James is convinced of Christ's power to change us. If we claim to have been saved, we must pursue holiness and integrity in our speech. Our love for God must be reflected in our love for His image bearers. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. These go together love for God and love for brothers, and they will come out of our speech. James has, has exposed us. He's not shamed us, but he has exposed us. He's not doing this to mock us, but so that we see desperately that we need a Savior so that we are humbled and so that we turn to our Savior for grace and so that when, if we have that new life in Christ, so that we live in conformity with the sweetness of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Historians have debated how the Great Chicago Fire started. The most popular version, the, 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 the most likely story the, or the most believed story, is that a cow in a barn kicked over a lantern. One cow in a barn kicks over a lantern. Great fires start with small flames. What fires will be started by your tongue? Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be discouraged. God does miracles. But we do have to ask... What does my speech reveal about the state of my soul? The sanctification of our speech is an evidence of the salvation of our souls. Has God done a miracle in your speech? Has God done a miracle in your soul? Let's pray. Father, Psalmist in Psalm 141, verse 3, prays, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, and keep watch over the door of my lips. 
Father, I pray for those who are feeling uh, the demands of your holiness heavy, who don't know you, that listening to their own speech, seeing the state of their souls apart from your grace would cause them to run to Jesus Christ, that they would fling themselves upon the edge of his robe for healing, and that they would know reconciliation with you. Father, I pray for those who have been saved, who you are transforming, that we would take increasingly serious uh, this opportunity we have to mirror the miracle that you've done in our souls in the sanctification of our speech. In Jesus' name, amen.